run. Sade. <laughs> Righteous. Journey. Chase. Hunt. Trial. Righteous are you, Lord. Be trustworthy. My zeal wears me out. My enemies ignore your word. Your promises have been thoroughly tested, and your servant loves them. Though I am lowly and despised, do not forget your precepts. Righteousness is everlasting, and your law is true. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands are my delight. Statutes are forever right. Give me understanding that I may live. Mm -hmm. Heavenly Father, wow, we thank you for the wonderful chance to come together and to share in your word. And Lord, we just, uh, we got some people that aren't feeling so well out there, my beautiful <laughs> wife and Linda, and uh, well, I'm sure that uh, Jack Colvin is still struggling after his surgery, and anybody else, Lord, that's out there that's not feeling well, that you would put your hand of healing upon them and let them know that you're there with them as they're struggling. And oh, we thank you for the chance to come together and to share in your precious word and to talk about it. And we would pray that it would be... Uh, it would be handled properly and that we would not divert from what you would have for us. But I would also pray that people would go and check these things out when they're done to make sure that uh, uh, what is said here is in accord with your word. And if there's something that they feel is wrong, that, that they would bring that up so that you would be glorified and that we would not have people following bad doctrine. And Lord, we thank you for all the good blessings of this life, how wonderful you are to us. Everything you do is so wonderful. And you're precious in our heart and in our lives, and we just thank you for that. We thank you for the gift of Jesus and the salvation that comes through his precious shed blood. We thank you and we praise you in his name. Amen. Uh, okay, I am not going to read this day in Christian history today because it takes a little while and we may close a little early. And uh, if so, then, uh, then uh, I just don't want to deprive getting into the book of Romans. So we'll skip that today. And I will go ahead and do one of the articles from the Chicago Statement of Faith because it goes quickly and it just it'll get us into a right frame of mind. So we're in article 14. They say, we affirm the unity and internal consistency of scripture. The Bible is unified. From Genesis to Revelation, its message is harmonious. It is internally consistent. There is no inconsistency in it. The book of Obadiah points to the same Redeemer and the same salvation as the book of Ruth. And uh, what the New Testament proclaims is what the Messiah has done. And it teaches us our theology, and it also tells us about what's coming in the future. But it's all consistent. Okay? We deny that alleged errors and discrepancies that have not yet been resolved vitilate, vitiate, I'm sorry, the truth claims of the Bible. Okay, well, there are lots of things in the Bible that have not been resolved. We have heard that there's, you know, this group of people that was in Israel, and that per that a history has not identified that group of people as having been in Israel. I mean, you know, that's just an example. This town is said to be somewhere in Israel, and they've never found the archaeological evidence for it. That doesn't negate the truth of Scripture at all. And if there's anything in Scripture that seems to conflict with history, such as, you know, you have this king that was at this time, and Scripture gives them a different name. Well, more often than not, we find out that the king had two names. They'll find something like that on a tablet later. 
if there is a king that is identified and they can't, you know, uh, determine that the Bible is true in that, it doesn't mean that the Bible is wrong. It just means that it has not yet been verified. So what they're saying is that the Bible stands alone. It is God's word. And just because something has not been proved from scripture or about scripture, it doesn't mean that the Bible isn't true. And uh, so uh, one good example is the, um, let me see if I can find this really quickly. Um, it's in the book of Daniel, and it is, I think, probably about Daniel chapter 7, but let me check this out. Um, let's see here. here on, oh, it's chapter 5. Okay, and it says, um, oh, let's see here, gave command, and they clothed Daniel. Um, uh, okay, got the writing on the wall. The queen says King Belshazzar was greatly troubled. And um, here it is, verse 7, Daniel 5, verse 7, the king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler. Exactly. Burke had three fingers up. Third ruler in the kingdom. Okay. For years, they said, well, that makes no sense. People dismissed it. They One thing after another about how the Bible's got this error, we'll come to find out that at the time there was a co-regency and he couldn't make him the second ruler in the kingdom because his father was co-regent at the same time. And so once again, the Bible just took a while in being verified, but it didn't mean that the Bible was ever wrong. It just meant that history had not caught up or you know, the uh, archaeological record had not yet caught up with that particular precept. So there's nothing wrong with the Bible. People will try to say that it's not true because, okay, well, here's another good example really quickly. The Bible says that God created the earth in six days. Six days. Thank you. Okay, so he created the earth in, in uh, six days and all the things that are in it. One day, yes, heavens and the earth were created, and then in six days he finished all of the creation. Okay. The record seems to show that it's billions of years, okay? So they say the Bible is wrong because of that. Well, once again, we're finding out time and time and time again that things are not as they seem. And we're finding out all kinds of evidences for a short-term creation. People still dismiss it. Well, what about this? What about this? And it doesn't matter. This is what the Bible proclaims. This is what it says. And, you know, we've lost nothing if the Bible is not literal in that per particular perspective. But I take it literally because there's no reason to not take it literally. And when people say, well, what about, um, I, I know I brought this up before, but when they say something about um, uh, granite as opposed to limestone, we know that limestone is only, you know, hundreds of thousands of years old in these layers, but we know the granite is billions of years old. And we know it because of the radioactive decay in the granite. But it doesn't matter. He could have created it in a single second and it's still granite and it's still limestone just because this looks six billion years old and this looks hundreds of thousands of years old doesn't mean that they weren't created at exactly the same time they are created as what they are he didn't create granite as limestone he created granite as granite so it's going to have the appearance of age and the radioactive decay that's in it is what god put into it at that time whatever it is okay i went through the example of adam being created and looking 30 years old even though he was a day old same thought all of these things come into bearing just because the Bible seems to be wrong from what people perceive doesn't mean that it is. We may be reading the, the information incorrectly ourselves. So there you go. We find out all kinds of things about uh, life on the, the planet that proves that it's not billions of years old. And then as we did in a prophecy update a couple weeks ago, 
find out that it's not even hundreds of thousands of years old that they had this giant explosion of life and there wasn't any uh, 98 or 88 or whatever percent of life didn't exist before that you know and the other ones that do they just haven't evaluated that yet so i mean they're going to find this out and eventually they'll find out oh that's an error too and they're going to move that life up to probably eighty thousand years and then they're going to move it up to twelve thousand years and finally they're going to say you know what the bible is correct it will be validated mark my words on it day is a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day two peter verse three eight is where you go or you can go to psalm 90 verse four and it'll say the same thing peter is quoting uh uh moses which is the oldest psalm in the bible by the way so nice that you brought that up anyway um we'll get into romans now like i said we may close early uh susan garrett did hitiko call you today okay good all right so you you have an answer to i that's why i didn't answer your emails because she said she might talk to you did she sound okay she sounded sick. Okay. You're interrupting the class. No, I, I'm asking that because if I leave here, I am leaving here and you're locking up and I'm going home. I'm not feeling well too. So, well, I'm doing it. All you're doing is you're causing this to go on longer. See, the people online are saying, what's going on? Because my mother, instead of answering the question, argues. So here we go. Um, 12 verse 9 in the book of Romans. Love. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. Oh, that's a pretty concise uh, verse. And it says almost exactly the same thing in this version. Let love be without hypocrisy instead of being sincere, but abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. So there you go. Starting here in verse 9, okay, and continuing through the chapter, there are approximately 20 commands given by Paul. People talk about, oh, the New Testament doesn't have anything for us to do. We're saved by grace and we don't have to do anything. He's got about 20 commands right here. So uh, uh, somebody once said, and I've never sat down and tried to figure it out. They said there's actually more imposed on the New Testament believer than the Old Testament. I would doubt that. I think that was being a, a little bit uh, overbearing because the Old Testament has 613 known laws and it has a million things that the prophets told him as well. So what was that? No, I'm just uh, agreeing that the yeah, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think that. But we do have a lot of stuff that we are to do. However, we are not under law; we are under grace. grace. So sin isn't imputed for those things. But we one bring discredit upon ourselves. Two, we might get ourselves killed in the process. Three, we certainly bring dis discredit upon the Lord, and we're in a state of disobedience, and so we're going to lose rewards at the judgment seat. There's all kinds of things that come into play when we are not obedient to the commands that we're given. But we are under grace if we don't do them we're the ones that will face the lord and he will take care of it at that time anyway so we have about 20 commands given by paul a command in the epistles is a prescriptive statement given with the intent that it will be followed by the believer it should be obvious from reading these commands that many are things we fail at either openly or in our heart on a regular basis anybody that says that they don't i'm going to have to have a talk with you afterward and and get to the heart of what you're thinking because i don't think anybody can actually do all of these things continuously here's one right here um repay no one evil for evil if you're on facebook i guarantee you've probably done that once or twice anyway you know it just it's natural you may have deleted it 10 seconds later but guess what you made the post so I mean, we all get upset. We all do things that we say, I wish I hadn't have done that. So try try to go through all of these and we will. We'll go through them and you just ask yourself, do I do this perfectly all the time? Because they're prescriptive statements. Um, 
Unlike the law, however, there is no statement which says, if you do these things, you will live by them. Life has been granted through Jesus' work, okay? The commands then are intended to bring us into a harmonious way of life, both for ourselves and those we interact with. When we fail to meet up to these directives, we can lose our joy, our health, and our rewards. Here, I'm just repeating what I've already said off the top of my head. However, what's that? I think the same. I'm thinking the same as when I typed this one morning years ago. However, failing to meet these commands will not, will not result in a loss of salvation. This is one of the differences between people that believe in works-based salvation and those that don't. I was talking with a friend of mine a day ago, and he was talking about his church, and he had to leave it. I'm not going to give the name or the church, but he had to leave the church because uh, they, one, believe in faith plus works, and two, there are certain other things that uh, they disagreed with. Uh, well, we believe that the church has replaced Israel and this and that and one thing and another, and it, it, it's a shame because he loved the people he was with, but the longer he'd been there, the more he understood their doctrine. Uh, one of the things about, and I will say this just because we're sitting here and it's on my mind, is that when you go to a church and you say, okay, I want to know what this church teaches, and you go to their statement of faith, 99.99% .99 of the time, it is a cut and paste from some other website. People just, they cut and paste. And so you read it and you say, that sounds like a really good church. There are churches that are so far away from the proper doctrine of the Bible that have beautiful statement of faith. So reading that isn't really going to help you that much. I mean, it's a good basis to at least know what they, they teach. But secondly, even if they put that in there, and even if that's what they really believe, they may not actually preach it during the week, okay? In other words, they may get a, a, a you know somebody, a teacher that is not following that, uh, things like that. So statement of faith aren't always gonna do you properly. However, this guy was in a larger denomination where I guarantee you that if you had gone up to the corporate headquarters and read what they posted, you would know very well that the doctrine was bad. And when I found out what the name of the, the denomination was, I told them, you know, you did the right thing, not just for, for these side issues, but for several reasons. So statement of faith normally really are not something, and I've had people say to me, why don't you have a, a, a statement of faith that tells the things you believe? Exactly what I just told you. Our statement of faith on the Superior Word website is one verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's my statement of faith that I put on the Superior Word website. And if people don't like it, they can go find a church with a nice long statement of faith that says all of the little dots and dashes. And when they get in there, they're going to find out that probably it doesn't match what the statement of faith said. So these are, these are just things to keep in mind as you're out there going to churches and looking for them online. And, you know, you read that and then you find out that what you're being told in the email doesn't matter, match what the statement of faith says anyway. So anyway, um, so you're not going to lose your salvation if you don't do these things. OK, and that's why I brought up the issue of statement of faith It's because some people will say, well, we believe in eternal salvation. And then they send you an email and say, well, you're not doing what Paul says. And, you, you know, you're not a true Christian or you're going to lose your salvation. So it doesn't match. So you want to go by what people actually teach what they actually put forth and not just simply, you know, what a piece of paper that they cut and pasted from another church says. Okay, not going to lose your salvation. For example, a similar sentiment to Paul's admonitions is found in 2 Peter 1, verse 7. Let me take you there really quickly. 2 Peter 1, verse 7. And I can already feel my throat starting to get whatever again. So, 
we'll try to make it through the class and delivered uh, 2 Peter 1 got to be in the right chapter 2 Peter 1 verse 7 says um, to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness love we'll go back and we'll read the verse that we're in right now which says um, uh, let love be without hypocrisy abhor what is evil cling to what is good so they're kind of they're kind of similar there the surrounding verses there show how to remain faithful or fruitful and also how to increase in being fruitful but should one fail to do so, there is no indication of a loss of salvation. We went through that. We went through all of those verses a couple classes ago, and we got down to verse 9, and it says a person that doesn't do these things has forgotten that he is cleansed from his past sins. In other words, he's still saved. He's just forgotten that he's a saved guy. Okay? So, um, should one fail to do those things, there's no indication of a loss of salvation. Rather, there is the chastisement for having been short-sighted even to blindness. Understanding this, Paul begins with, let love be without hypocrisy. It's a very similar to thought what is stated in 1 John 3, verse 18. So hang on one second here. 1 John, Timothy, Hebrews. Wow, I am almost done typing the, uh, the uh, Philemon. Um, 1 John 3, 18. I'm almost done typing the Philemon commentary because I'm 10 days ahead of... Uh, them being posted and i'm thinking i'm done with paul in just a couple more days I, I mean it breaks my heart because i've enjoyed it so much this is the second time i've done it anyway 1 john 3 18 my little children let us not love in word or in tongue but in deed and in truth once again i'll read that from uh paul he says um let love be without hypocrisy it's the same general thought okay so 1 john 3 18 our love is to be sincere not merely paying lip service to those around us <clears throat> The use of the word hypocrisy means that we are not to be two-faced in this love. Such love, then, is a volitional act of the will, okay? There are times that we have to put aside ourselves and our negative feelings and simply endeavor to love those around us. It's not often an easy task, but it is what we are called to do, okay? In other words, a volitional act of the will is to show love even if you don't love the person that you're showing love to. Everybody got that? Because there are people you just don't love. You don't want to be around them. You don't want to talk to them. They're not your... It, it, have you ever had a person that you meet and you just, you know right away there's no fit? It, it, you'll never love that person, but you're to actively love them. A volitional act of the will in treating them the way that they should be treated even if you don't love them, okay? Everybody got the difference between the two because some people you just will never click with. It will never happen. It, it's life. Anyway, um, so uh, where was I? It's not easy. It's what we're called to do. Next, we are told to abhor what is evil. That which is evil is opposed to that which is godly, okay? We've talked about the uh, rust in the car. The car is made of metal, and that's good, right? Is evil a thing? No, you've got a hole in the car because there was rust. What is there? There's nothing. It's just the lack of a good thing. Okay, so we're to abhor what is evil, that which is opposed to what is good. Evil in itself isn't a, uh, a thing. It's a lack or a deprivation of a good thing. Okay, when God created everything good, everything was fine. Evil came into the world. There is a lack of the goodness that God created. That's an important thing to remember because evil is not a thing itself, but we treat it that way sometimes. Um, we are told to hate such things. Hatred, then, is not necessarily evil because I was in a Bible class one time up in Massachusetts. 
I was up there on vacation and my dad conned me into going to this Bible class and they were going through the book of Ecclesiastes and the word hate came up and they, they all sat around and they're, oh, it was horrifying to listen to. Anyway, how they should never say the word hate and blah, 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 blah. And yet I hate to say it, <laughs> but some of the people that were in that class were some of the most hateful people I've ever known. I mean, we're talking about people that support abortion, that hate the president, that this and that and one thing and another. So there's no way of getting around that. Hatred is not necessarily evil. God is said to hate things in scripture, and yet God is all good, okay? Therefore, anything contrary to what is holy and godly can and must be hated. So for the scripture to say that we are to hate this and to hate that, listen, there is nothing wrong with that. And to sit in the Bible class where they say, well, I don't think they should be saying hate in the Bible, they have no idea what they're talking about. God hates certain things, and we are to follow along with his example. We are to hate certain things, okay? Perversion, untruth, immorality of any kind, etc. is not just to be avoided, but it is to be hated, all right? You got something that you can't stand and you throw it away? Even more than that, get rid of it. You're not to have it in your life, and you're to abhor it. Yes? One of those churches he wrote to, he said, you hate the deeds of Nicolaitans, which also I hate. Which also I hate, absolutely. I mean, you can't get away from it. Jesus, that's right. He specifically says, let me take you there. Revelation 3 or 2? Uh, probably 3, but uh, we'll, we'll find it in about two seconds. Just look for the word Nicolaitans when you get to, to Revelation 2 and 3, and it'll just jump right out at you. Just so that Jesus, there are certain things that he hates. All right, got to get there first, but anyway. Okay, Revelation. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. All right, let's see here. 2 6. 2 6. All right, yeah, because you hate, you, because this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He hates their deeds, okay? Nicolaitans, just so you know, there, and I'm not going to get into a long talk about this, but there are a couple views on what the Nicolaitans are. Some people say that is uh, a, uh, a church which is run by the laity, okay? Uh, Nico, I'm trying to think of the root Greek word, Nick something, and then uh, laity would be the laitans, okay? And then some people say that it's a group of people that committed sexual immorality and stuff like that. Anyway, I, I, we can get into that when we get to the book of Revelation. But the point is that uh, people will argue over what this, what who the Nicolaitans were and what they, and they will defend their case sometimes with absolutely nonsense um, uh, analysis. So you gotta be really careful, especially when you read the book of Revelation, but all of scripture. People will just say things, and then they, if they come out of the Catholic Church, you will always see a, a Catholic bias against them, always. Everything that the Catholic Church is bad, it's always been bad, there's nothing good that ever came out of it, and you can just see it. Everything they write is anti-Catholic, okay? And so they would apply that to the Nicolaitans, all right? And this is just what people do. but. In the end, whatever it is, and like I said, we can look at the three or four different options of what Nicolaitans means, Jesus hated it. We can hate certain things, and we are to hate certain things. We're not to just say, oh, I'm, you know, I don't want to participate in that. You're, you're to actively hate those things. Okay, so um, let's see here. Uh, the things that our leaders do, which are contrary to Scripture, are included in this. Even though we are instructed to be obedient to the laws around us, Unless they violate God's laws for us, we are to hate them 
if they are evil, talking about the laws. We are to hate those things. The America supports the practice of abortion. Thank you, all right? That is something that is totally contrary to scripture. There are churches all over this country that actively support abortion and they actively pray for Planned Parenthood. I, I, I cannot understand that type of thinking. We are to hate that type of thinking. We're to, we're to hate that type of attitude, all right? So uh, even though we are instructed to be obedient to the laws around us, unless they violate God's laws for us, we are to hate them if they are evil. Abortion, once again, is a perfect example. We are not only to refrain from abortion, but we are to abhor and work against it. This is a mandate. It is not a hope, all right? People that sit on the sidelines and they say, well, I don't want to post about that issue or this issue because I don't want to offend anybody, have no basis in their, they have no grounding in their morality. We are to hate those things. We are to work against them. When we cast our vote, which we are to do as citizens of a nation, because this is a, a nation that allows the vote, we are to participate in that vote, okay? And we should vote for things that, or people that will work for the common good, that will work for biblical precepts. And sometimes you're left with kind of a bad choice. You might have, remember we had Mitt Romney and we had um, whoever he ran, oh yeah. Uh, anyway, we had those two choices. Well, Mitt Romney's a Mormon, but is he going to do a better job than this guy? Or are you gonna say, I'm not going to vote because I disagree with him being a Mormon? Well, I gotta tell you what, the option that we had at that time demanded that if you were going to vote, you were going to vote for this person and not for that person. It's just the way of the world. There are certain th times where not everything is clean cut and perfect, all right? I did not support in the beginning of our election cycle, our current president. There was somebody else that I supported, but I never spoke badly about our current president. I just simply didn't support him. And then when he became the nominee, I said he is going to be far better than this person. It's my duty as a citizen to support this person now that he is, and boy, am I glad we got him, right? You know, I, I, I just didn't support him because somebody else came out and said, I speak to God every day. And I thought, first, when I heard that, before I even had a chance to hear the sentence finished, I thought, that guy's insane. And then he clarified it at the second clause of his sentence. He said, I speak, to, I speak to God or I hear from God every day. He said, when I read his word. And I said, I'm going to vote for that guy. If he's willing to say that in open public, I will vote for him. Well, he didn't get nominated and that's fine. It's probably better he didn't now that I see what's going on. But make choices because when you don't make a choice for the good, you are implicitly making a choice for the bad. That's just the way it is. I know that some people don't want to talk politics. They don't, but we have responsibilities as citizens within this world. Okay. He put us in this nation for a reason. I wasn't born in Thailand. I wasn't born in, you know, wherever. This is where I am. I need to live within the confines of this nation. So um, <clears throat> finally, we are told to cling to what is good. The word for cling, it's a big, long Greek word, kalomenoi. It, uh, it carries the thought of gluing two things together. <laughs> we are, in essence, to be glued to goodness. The root of this Greek word was commonly used throughout the ancient Greek medical writings when speaking of repairing wounds. This then is the reciprocal of abhorring evil, which could be considered a wound in what is good. In order to accomplish the latter, clinging to what is good, we are not to perform the former, abhorring evil. Okay, oh, I'm sorry, we need to perform the former, which is abhorring evil. In order to cling to what is good, we need to abhor evil. You can't do one without the other and be consistent in your life and actions. 
okay? Life application. <laughs> the Bible doesn't waffle on the issues of sin and evil. We are to hate them in all their forms. Clinging to the world and its fallen system is contrary to what God expects of us. Let us be determined to live holy, godly lives and to cling to that which is good. Okay? Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Okay, mine says a little different, but same thought. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Okay? And then in honor, giving preference to one another. I'm sure that all of us do that all day, every day. So we don't need to evaluate that verse, okay? All right, I know that we fail at that. We all do. So verse 10, this verse includes continued instruction in our expected duties and relationships as members of the church. Two specific thoughts are included. The first is to be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Two words based on the thought of personal affection are used. One which is translated as kindly affectionate is the word philostorgoi. This is its only use in the New Testament, and it is implying the closeness of a family, a mother for her children, or the proper love of siblings who don't quarrel or compete, but who truly care for each other. The idea is that we are to love one another within the body of believers as if they were members of our immediate and cherished family. And once again, that's not always easy. We got people in our churches that rub us wrong and we rub them wrong and it's very difficult, but this is what the standard which we are being asked to live by, okay? We're all gonna fall short of these things, so don't beat yourself up too much, but this is the standard which we are to live by. This is a fellow brother in Christ. One of the things that, you know, there are people that I disagree with on doctrine. We know some of them who I bring up from time to time. Uh, one of them died not too long ago. and. His doctrine in many areas, I think, is appalling, but he is a saved believer in Christ. And the one thing, and I'm very quick to do this on Facebook. I have no problem with it at all. When somebody is out there and they're pointing fingers at everybody, and, you know, they're just completely tearing apart other Christians who are saved and who may just be wrong on a couple precepts, but they have otherwise very good doctrine. I usually will say, you know, there's a cure for that. It's uh, Finger Pointers Anonymous. And I just leave it at that, and I'll post that there, because there are some people that just need to be told, stop pointing your finger, because you're not perfect either, all right? And I, I, I don't mean to be arrogant or rude to people like that, but there's a point where I get nauseous, and the next thing I'm going to do is, if I keep seeing it, is to just click them off of my, my wall, because I don't want to see that, okay? There is a time to call out heresy. There's a time to call out really bad doctrine, false doctrine, but to just pick on people because you disagree with this point of doctrine when everything else they do is geared specifically towards Jesus Christ is really not a good thing. So uh, it, it just isn't. I, I disagree with, as I said, R.C. Sproul, but I agree with him on many, many points of doctrine. And just because he believes that the church has replaced Israel, guess what? He's going to stand before the Lord and he is going to be corrected on that. And when I stand before the Lord, I'm going to be corrected on a lot of things. I'm sure that I have taught wrong that I never intended to teach wrong. Okay, but there is a difference between tearing apart people and correcting their doctrine, you know, in, in a kindly, affectionate manner. Anyway, that's, uh, that's the uh, kind of thing that uh, we just need to kind of keep our minds geared toward because it is easy to tear other people apart and it can happen really quickly. So um, let's see here. Uh, the second word is translated as brotherly love. Hi, how are you? 
It is the word. Anybody know what the word is? Brotherly love. Philadelphia. There you go. It's used six times in the New Testament. And it shows that we are to treat each other as true brothers in the faith. The idea of brotherly love finds its most direct explanation in the words of Jesus. It's found in John 13. Here's what he said. A new commandment I give you, that you, thank you, love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Okay, so there you go with that. Just as Jesus loves us, we are to love each other. His love was a sacrificial love, going so far as death for his own brothers. He washed their feet. He humbled himself. He cared for them with true kindness and affection. And this type of love translates into the second thought of verse 1210, which is that we are to act towards others, as Paul says, in honor, giving preference to one another. Instead of being first, we're to stand back and open the door. Rather than looking for uh, note among others, we should note others. In place of lording our position above others, we should exalt those around us. The honor is to be directed from each person outward toward other people. And by acting in this way, it then becomes a demonstration to all that honor is due to all, right? Life application. Paul's list of expectations from each of us is to assimilate, uh, is easy to assimilate in instruction, but it's immensely hard to put into practice. And I'll be the first one to admit that. I can type these things up at four o'clock in the morning and I can say, this is how we are to conduct our lives. And within an hour and a half, I will have failed at least 10 of the things that we'll see in the next few minutes. Okay, that's just the way it is. It's very easy to type up something like this and to tell people how to live. It's very easy to assimilate it into your head and say, oh yeah, I understand that. I grasp that. I can act that way. And it's very hard to actually act in that way. Okay, it involves a constant mental effort of putting ourselves into a proper perspective, which is in many ways contrary to our nature. In order to meet these admonitions, we need to keep looking back to the life and ministry of Jesus. When we see his treatment of those who are of the faith, we have a fixed point of reference to act in a like manner. If you forget how you're supposed to act towards other people, just think of what Jesus did on the night before he was crucified, right? He took off his outer garment, he wrapped himself in a towel, and he went and he washed the people's feet, okay? And there, you know, there's one thing about, they talk about washing the feet, wash the feet of the saints, the women are supposed to do that. And all. Does everybody understand that back then they wore togas for the most part, they had uh, sandals for the most part, and their legs were filthy. They'd walk in and their feet would be filthy. And so they would go and they'd wash it off. Well, nowadays, it's almost unrealistic to say, I'm going to go wash the feet of the saints. It becomes almost an act of ultra piety. We're going to have a feet washing thing on Thursday night and the pastor is going to do this. And it's like, oh, look at our greater pastor is. The point is that we're to act in the manner that Christ acted in. If their feet aren't filthy, if they just came from taking a shower at home, why would you bother? Right? It doesn't make any sense. Everything in context and everything with the intent of living like Christ, not for show, but for doing it so that that he is honored and that you are acting in a manner of humility. Maybe not um, um, washing their feet, but something that is just as degrading, which they need help with that you're willing to do, okay? So just my thought on that. But it's not to say that it is a cultural thing and that we shouldn't be doing it. If that's something that we do, as far as washing feet, you know, if you live out in 
I don't know, Arizona and everybody works outside and you're filthy, then help them wash up, whatever. I don't know. I'm not saying that the Bible is incorrect. I'm saying that there's just no point in washing somebody's feet if their feet are already clean, right? Okay. 12-11. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fever serving the Lord. Okay. Mine says, not lacking in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So close, but no cigar. No, I'm kidding. Okay. Uh, the list of admonitions concerning our Christian service continues with not lagging in diligence. This is stated in the negative, showing us what not to do. We are then to assume the opposite and to be diligent. Everybody got that? Don't lag in judgment. So then be diligent. Okay. His Use of lagging indicates slothfulness or idleness. Instead of hoping for an opportunity and then ignoring it when it does come about, we're to seek out opportunities. If we're so blessed as to have them show up at the door, we are to be diligent in accepting what has come our way. I'll give you a perfect example of that so you know what's on a way of looking at this. We go out to the projects every Saturday morning, myself and about four others. We got uh, three of them in, no, yeah, three of them uh, in here right now. And um, uh, what's that? One and one watching for certain, right? Okay. So, uh, and we go out there and we could walk out there and we could say, well, we went out and we did our job today. Nobody came up to us. And so we left, right? But that's not what you do. You have to get out there and you actually have to approach people. And it, we don't do quite what we used to do years ago. We used to actually go up to doors and just knock on them. Okay, well now after all these years, we kind of got a base of people that we know, and then other people see us praying with them, and eventually we get to know them as well. So it's kind of a self-sustaining thing, whereas at the beginning, it was mostly Tom, because I started a year after Tom, but you just went out and knocked, and you just, you know, can we talk to you about Jesus, you know, blah, 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 and it, it, it takes a certain amount of motivation. If you just go out there and say we're going to help people and walk around and just look at people and nod at them as you walk by, you're not really doing anything. So when we walk by somebody we've never seen before, Tom will usually say, here, you want something for the sweet tooth? And they'll say, oh, thank you. And then, oh, anything we can pray with you about? And they say, oh, yeah, I need to pray. And almost nobody will turn down prayer. I, oh. I What? Well. well, no, I'm saying that I would say one out of every 20 people would turn down prayer. I agree. Yeah, I, I'd say one. Would you say that's about right, Tom? Probably one out of 20. Almost nobody. There are people that will turn down prayer and they'll turn it down sometimes in a very rude way. But for the most part, when you just say, is there anything we can pray with you about? Most people say, oh, yeah, you know, my mom is sick or, you know, I'm whatever. But don't be lacking in diligence. You have to actually go out and be diligent. That's the point. That's not to pat us on the back. That's just to say what we do. And it's to be an example that maybe somebody else out there that's listening says, well, I never thought of doing that. I'll go out and go to the projects or I'll go downtown and I'll talk to the, the poor people, whatever. But it doesn't just happen. You have to actually go out and do it. <clears throat> okay. Oh, funny. A great example of this is witnessing. Huh, here I'm talking about it. And how many times do we <clears throat> hear the comment that the chance to witness never comes about? Isn't that funny? I'm thinking this and then there it is. Whatever. Rather, we need to seek opportunities with diligence and then follow through with them. Likewise, <clears throat> excuse me, there are many around us who subtly let us know they want to know why we believe the things that we do believe concerning Jesus. People will hint until they're blue in the face without actually asking about Jesus. And yet it's just one of those things, I'm embarrassed or I, you know, I'm, I'm not worthy or there's a million reasons why somebody will not come out and directly ask you about Jesus. Okay, probably the I'm not worthy one is about 
halfway up the list. There's a lot of people that just don't think that they are, but they want to know. Okay, so uh, uh, there are many who subtly let us know what they want to know. When when will we actually respond to those hints? Because people are hinting all the time, or we're to actually go out and put our foot forward, and then hopefully they'll take the cue from us one way or another. This concept that Paul is speaking of surely applies to all types of work, not just ministerial jobs. If we're slothful in our regular employee, who will want to know about our faith, right? If you're in a job and you're just one of these guys that goes in, punches the clock, and sits around until you're told to do something, nobody's going to want to ask you about your faith. They're going to say, that guy's a loser from the loser belt, right? They're not going to want to know. So if you're working diligently, if you're happy all the time, if you smile at people, eventually they're going to say, well, why are you always happy? You know, it's just natural. That's just the way it is. I'm at 7-Eleven every single day of my life. And it, whether it's about Jesus or not, that's not the point. The point is that when I'm at 7-Eleven, I'm out there, I'm barefoot and I'm dirty. I carry the same dirty rag that I've carried now for like five years. Okay. And I I take it and I wipe everything down at 7-Eleven and I take the uh, the rubber mat that's out front of there and I walk over to the, the grass and I shake it off so that the people at 7-Eleven are so lazy. They walk, <laughs> they walk out of the store, right? I'm talking about the people that work there at night shift. But this is why I started doing this. I just do it because they just do such a bad job. They take this rubber mat, which is supposed to get your, your dirt off of your shoes when you're walking in, and where do they dump it? They walk right there and they dump it in the parking lot right where people are walking. So when they step in it, they carry it back to the mat and then they walk into the store with it anyway. I'm like, so finally I do it for them every single morning. I take that thing and I shake it off over in the grass over there so that all that dirt doesn't get walked back in. It's just funny. Anyway, so I'm out there and when I put the mat down, people are always coming in and out of 7-Eleven. It happens all the time. So what do I do? I put the mat down and somebody's walking in. What do you think I do? I grab the door and I open it for them. And I say, good morning. And I do it every day or somebody's walking out and I say that. And eventually, if there's somebody that's working in a, a job out on the key for three weeks or something, after about a week, they say, I see you here every day. What are you doing? And I say, well, I work for Peggy. And then eventually they might say oh, you, something, you know, and you get into a conversation and then you get to talk about Jesus. You never know if they say, well, you, you're not wearing shoes. You look dirty, but you're always happy. Why is that? And I say, because I know Jesus, right? That's what you do. You got to be diligent, not, not slothful in these type of things. And eventually it'll come out. There'll be a reason for somebody to ask. Okay. They want to know about her faith. And this goes hand in hand with what Solomon says. He says this. Let me take you back to the book of Ecclesiastes. <clears throat> All right. And hang on. Give me just one second here. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, chapter 9. And let's see here. What does he say there? Verse 10, 9, 10. He says, uh, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or device or knowledge or wisdom in the grave where you are going. Okay? Work hard now. Do what you can. Do it with diligence and do it with a smile on your face. Even when, you know what? I have not felt at all good for four days now. Kitako came home. She was sick the same day I was sick. That's never happened in all of her married years, I think. But we're both sick at the same time, and she's really got it bad, right? And yet, it, every morning, I don't let, they say, how are you? I say, oh, everything's wonderful. The Lord is so good or something. I, I don't want people to know that I'm sick because they might have it worse than I do right now. And I don't want them to go away depressed. I want them to go away happy. So even if you're miserable, 
there's probably somebody that's more miserable than you. You don't know if they're going to... Probably? Yeah, well, yeah, there definitely is. If they don't know Jesus, they definitely are. But you don't know if they want to commit suicide or something. You don't know what people are thinking. So as long as you can put up a happy face, even if you're miserable, it will pay off in the end. Somebody will somebody will be benefit from it. So just, just do it. Okay? One aspect of life will affect all other aspects of life. Being slothful in one area will inevitably lead to sloth in another. Next. Oh, you know, you want to know how you know that's true? Go to the projects, right? They have one area in their life that they're slothful, and it just carries on to every single other part of their life. Nothing gets done. They sit on their hands all day long, and they need somebody to tell them that there's a better way. We've got a girl, and I, I've said it now three weeks in a row, maybe four, for years, she's 36 years old and never had a job in her life. There are five generations living in one house. The oldest one is the grandmother and she's 57. Five generations. Oh, great-grandmother, I'm sorry. Great-grandmother, grandmother, kids, and then grandkids. So you have the five of them there and the oldest is 57 years old and they've never worked a day in their life. And finally, some months ago, I don't want to give her name, but she got a job. And we were all so happy for her. And what do I say every week now? I say it every week. I miss, her, I, but... I miss her, but I'm so happy I don't see her face. I said it to her son last week. I miss your mom so much, but I'm so happy that I don't see her face because she's actually working. We're so proud of her. The son sees the change in her. It's wonderful, right? But if you're slothful, it just carries on to every other aspect of your life. I will bet you $50. I've been into her house before. I will bet you that if I went in there now, it's cleaner than it ever was because now she's got something to do out in the world. She comes home and instead of sitting around, she actually cleans something up. And it, it, it's almost infectious where you do one thing and another and another. But once you stop doing this, then you stop doing that and you stop. And pretty soon everything just falls apart around you. So, Which is what she's doing. Right? That's what she's doing. Yeah, she's cleaning she's up, cleaning up uh, hotels and stuff. And she's working as she's been doing it faithfully. She's only seen her a couple of times and she's happy. She's completely different than she was when we first met her. Completely different human being. Completely. Believe me in this. Isn't that right, Tom? If you had known her nine or eight years ago, you would not believe the person. You wouldn't believe it. And now it's wonderful. So be productive. Don't be slothful. Okay. Um, we'll go on. Uh, next in uh, contrast to lagging and diligence, we are instructed to be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. The word here for fervent is used frequently when speaking of boiling something. Paul is telling us to be boiling with the spirit in what we do. When water or some other liquid is heated, eventually it will start to bubble. And then the bubbling will intensify until it boils. This concept is transferable to our work ethic and emotions. We should be so moved in our service to the Lord that we boil over in the exercise of our duties. Right? That's what people want to see. You get a miserable person around you and then they get miserable and everybody gets miserable and you got a misery party. But if there's somebody to cheer people up, it's like a good leader. When you get a good leader, people will generally tend to be inspired. I remember in the 1980s, we had a really good leader, didn't we? He was wonderful. And the nation was inspired by him. Okay? I don't know if we'll ever have that, even though we have somebody with as much zeal and as much strength as our previous president. I'm talking about the one in the 80s. I don't know if it'll ever get to that point again because there's so much hatred and division in the world now. But we have a good leader but we had a really great man. Yeah, anybody that can lay on a table after being shot, and the last thing he says 
I hope none of you are Democrats. He said it to the and surgeon. He, yeah, he said to the surgeon. I mean, anybody that can say that is obviously a somebody that can mend ways with people in ways that most people could never even imagine. He was a wonderful man. He had a great sense of humor. He truly cared about humans and he cared about our nation. And he had a great sense of humor. When he demeaned somebody, it was always very tactfully and it was in a way that they knew that he was sincere and yet he was doing it in a loving way. He was he, he was a marvel of how he handled these these interactions with others. Anyway, life application. If we want to get ahead in our job, we work our hardest, put forth diligence in our duties and look for and pursue opportunities which can further the cause of our employer. If we put this type of attention into our earthly employ, how much more should we do so for our heavenly Lord and the furtherance of his kingdom? Yes. Go ahead if you got it in front of you. Be diligent. Oh yeah, be diligent. Go ahead, read it be nice and loud. Diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling word of the word of God. Okay, there and you know what? That's exactly right. Here we're talking about earthly diligence, and then I say we should do that for our heavenly Lord. And there you go, perfect. It's a perfect verse for that. We've got our earthly. Uh, um, right diligence written out by Paul and we have our heavenly diligence written out by Paul right there and you know what how many times do we do that we actually spend all of this time and effort to Im impress our, our boss impress people we're around and yet we don't do anything for the Lord right I mean, now I'm not saying people in here I'm not saying people online I'm saying people in general okay we're here we must be here because we love the Lord and we love his word but you look around at how you know dead churches are as far as but what they do do quite they you know they're one of the things that is hard at first to reconcile until you think of what they're doing it for is churches that are a social gospel and they go out and they do a ton of really good stuff for society but they have no heart for the lord at all so you wonder why are they doing this at all it's because they know that there's something wrong they don't want to acknowledge the lord but they know they have to do something and so they go out there and they try to earn the Lord's favor by doing good stuff, you know, for the poor people who are building houses, this and that. It, the most important thing is to honor the Lord. And if you're doing that properly with your life, then you will also be doing your work diligence properly. Okay. They, they have one part of the puzzle, but they completely ignore the second part. Okay. So next verse. Be joyful in hope, patient affliction, faithful in prayer. Okay, little different again, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Same thought, just a little different. Okay, continuing on with his list of admonitions for the believer, we are told to be rejoicing in hope. Our hope is the blessed hope. Paul speaks of it in Titus 2.13, which says that we should be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. For the believer, this is the coming rapture of the church. Everybody? Anybody disagree with that? Because that's my hope. I just wanted to see if anybody was going to give me one of those looks like, no, that's not what I'm looking for. Now, I don't I, I, I don't get people that say that you have to go through till mid-trib or you have to go through till um, post-trib, you know, when the Lord comes because we have to suffer. I, I don't get that. The Lord isn't here to beat up his church. He's not here to beat up his people. He's made us a promise. He's coming back for us. And he says, you are not destined for wrath, but salvation through Jesus Christ, right? Well, the tribulation period is a time of wrath on earth. 
Right. I could go on with a thousand verses. We're not going to talk why about the rapture right now, but there? the what? Why would you put your bride? Yeah, why would you put your bride through the worst part of all human existence since the flood of Noah? Why right. would you do that? It, it, no, absolutely not. I agree with that. Uh, so anyway, for the believer, this is the coming rapture of the church. The good thing about the rapture is that even if someone dismisses the concept, guess what? It's still coming. They will just be more surprised than those who are expectantly waiting it. And because of this sure hope, which is so specifically laid out in Scripture, we can not only rejoice in that hope, but we can rejoice always, as we are admonished in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 16. Anybody quote that verse? Rejoice always, or rejoice evermore. That's the shortest verse in the New Testament. It's not Jesus wept, okay? Jesus wept in the Greek is much, much longer. Edakrosen o Jesus. Whereas uh, rejoice always is pantote charete. It's much shorter. That's the shortest verse in the New Testament. So there you go. Anyway, however, while we rejoice in hope, we are not immune from trials, tests, or tribulations. Paul reminds us of this by saying that we should be patient in tribulation. So we're rejoicing in hope, but we're patient in tribulation. One can't be patient in one in, in what one doesn't experience. Everybody got that? You can't be patient in what you're not going to experience. Paul says, be patient in tribulation. What does that imply? We're going to go through tribulation. That's right. All right. We don't snap our fingers and claim our way out of distressful times. They're going to come. We're going to have them. And we have to be patient through them. All right. Therefore, it would be incorrect to expect the Christian walk to be one which has paths lined with roses and tables that are filled with corn, wine, and oil. Rather, we can and we should expect times of difficulty, but we are asked to be patient in them as we are carried through them, okay? And it hasn't been a bad week. I mean, Hideko and I have been sick, but we've been up and, you know, doing stuff. Although every day I've had, every day I've had to take a nap and every day I've gone way early to bed, but it hasn't been bad. What was really bad was... <laughs> Poor, uh, what's his name, uh, Jack, last week in the hospital. I, I, I'm miserable for that guy seeing him in there. And I was I was almost jumping when I got the text that says, we have left the hospital, we're back home. I was so happy because, you know what? He was patient in tribulation. He had a real tough week, and thank God he is out of there. And I know that, you know, I was there every single day that I could be there. I didn't go on sermon typing day or on Sunday, obviously. But I, I went every single day that I could. I went at different hours because I have different things to do on different days, okay? So I'd be there early, I'd be there late, I'd be there in the middle of the day. Guess what? Every single time I was there, guess what? Anybody? Beth was there. Oh. Every single time. She must have just stayed there the entire time. Now, you know what? That takes, that is patience and tribulation all by itself because sitting in a hospital looking at somebody that's suffering is miserable, right? Every single time that I was there, she was there. So there you go. My hat's off to them, and I hope that they're, he is resting well right now and getting better because we don't want to see that for them anymore. Um, anyway, uh, let's see here. Yes, finally, in verse 12, we are asked to be continuously, or I'm sorry, continuing steadfastly in prayer. The King James Version says continuing in instant prayer. This terminology has since all but completely lost its original meaning. The idea here is perseverance, not suddenness. Jesus uses the parable of the persistent widow in 
Luke 18, 1 through 8, as an example of persistent and continuous prayer. So let's just go there. I wasn't going to read it, but then I thought we might as well, because somebody might not have heard that parable before, or they might need to be reminded of it today. Luke 18, and uh, verse 1. Oh, one more page. Then he spoke a parable to them that men ought always to pray and not lose heart. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels and they are written to or about or jesus Jews. ministries that's right it's to the jews it's written to us all scriptures god breathed it's for all people but he was speaking to the jews he was speaking under the law about things that pertain to them but when it says something like this i got to tell you it pertains to everybody at least in the precept okay it says that men ought always to pray and not lose heart that's eternal that doesn't change just because he's speaking to israel under the law there is, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now, there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me out. So, good job. Uh, verse 6, then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said, and shall not God avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he finally find faith on the earth? So there you go. We're to pray. We're to pray without ceasing, according to Paul. Where to just, you know, it's one of those things. I'm sure I've said it in this class. If not, I've said it in a million emails to people because I get this question a lot. I don't think my prayer life is very effective. And I say, well, you ought to see mine. I, you know, I, I don't have set times of the day where I, I pray. You know, Martin Luther said, if I don't pray five hours a day, I'll never get anything done. That was the first thing he did, and he did it for five hours a day. I couldn't do that for five minutes without getting sidetracked. I, I couldn't do it. I'm too busy. I get up, and I got something to do. But I tell them, when you talk to God throughout the day, you're just walking, you're driving, you're, you're mowing the lawn, whatever you're doing, picking up garbage at 7-Eleven, and you're just talking to the Lord, that is praying. When Paul says pray continuously or pray without ceasing, he doesn't mean to stop get on your knees and do one of these things for 20 minutes because you got to get up and then when you get up and start again you're not praying right when he's saying that he's saying live in an attitude of prayer when you walk pray when you talk pray you don't have to just stop and say okay let's pray about that sometimes i do that with people sometimes i don't sometimes i just leave them and i say lord you know they have a problem and i'm just talking to them like i'm talking to you right now that's a prayer life that is a prayer life so you don't have to think that you are failing at your prayer life because you're not on your knees five hours a day or you're not saying specific prayers about specific things. As long as you are talking to the Lord about some need at some time or something that's on your heart, you are demonstrating faith and he is listening. Okay, so that's my recommendation about prayers. If people disagree, that's fine. I cannot see being on my knees eight hours a day because I would never get anything done. Just the opposite of Martin Luther. Okay, so Doesn't some other religion do that like several times a day. Oh yeah, you get Islam. They pray five times a day, right? They have one before sunrise. They have one after sunset, and they've got three during the day. I lived in a Muslim nation, and I saw it all the time. First, God isn't hearing those prayers. Okay, your sins have separated you from your God, so that He does not hear your prayers. Okay, 
they have not come through the mediator. There is one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus, right? So there is no mediation for them, and so he's not hearing their prayers. And yet they pray all the time. They're wasting their time. When you pray, you have to be in Christ. And if you're talking to God because you are in Christ, then your prayers are being heard. Well, they're not calling on God. They're calling on out. Well, absolutely right. But do you know that Christians, what Christians in those countries call God? They call him Allah. Absolutely. So what is Allah? If you listen to, yeah, it, all Allah means is God. That's the Arabic word for God. If you read a uh, Indonesian Bible, which is, they, they uh, are, uh, that was a country that was evangelized or whatever you call it, subdued by Muslims. All Christian Bibles in Malaysia and Indonesia say Allah instead of God. All right. And when they, uh, you go to Egypt, when they talk about God, they talk about Allah. But they're Christians, okay? So you got to be careful with that one. They, they, Allah is simply a name, just like we say God, and then w where does the term God come from? It comes from a pagan source, okay? It's just a word, all right? Even some people argue that Elohim comes from a pagan source. I doubt that. It's Hebrew. It's right there at the Genesis 1, verse 1, okay? Whatever. All we have is the words that we have. That's all we have. We're human beings, and we are limited to language, Okay? So when we have a word, it doesn't matter where that word came from. What matters is the context in which you are using it. If I am praying Allah, then I am speaking to the God, the Father of Jesus Christ, then that's who I'm speaking to, right? When a Muslim prays to Allah, he's not praying to the same God. He doesn't have the mediator. He doesn't have the fellowship, any of it. Okay, so we have to be careful with words, especially semantics. When we get into certain words and, well, you said this word, well, I intended this, and it's obvious what I meant. People will argue semantics until they're blue in the face, and sometimes that's actually detrimental. you got to be careful not to argue semantics too much, because sometimes people intend what they intend, and you have misunderstood them. And instead of giving them the benefit of the doubt, you're picking on them when you, in fact, are probably wrong. So, whatever. Um, words have meanings, but they have meanings according to what we apply them to. All right, that's, I'm trying to think of one to give you an example, and I can't right now, so we'll go on. But um, yes, you are correct, though. Muslims are praying to Allah, but what is Allah? That's the question, okay? Because if you're a Christian, Allah is the true God. So um, let's see here. Um, steadfast in prayer, it's a state of life which asks us to speak out to our Heavenly Father rather than gabbing on the cell phone. I better read that again. So could we ask, what is continuous and steadfast prayer? It is a state of life which asks us to speak to our Heavenly Father rather than gabbing on the cell phone. This is why I don't have a cell phone. I, I, I don't ever want one. I would spend a lot of time on it. When I went around the States in 2010, I took a cell phone because I thought it was important just in case I needed to get in contact with him. My friend had a family plan and he gave me his phone. He says, you can use it all you want. And I says, I'm not going to use this for five minutes. I said, I do not want to have this thing. I wasn't out of Bradenton. And I was on the phone and I talked all the way around America. I, I don't want a phone. I don't want anything to do with that stupid thing. As soon as I got back, I gave it to him. I thanked him and I have not had a phone since. And when I was at CSQ Utilities, I had to carry a cell phone because I was the manager and, you know, it's, it's an on-call type of thing. People die, people get sick, whatever. So I had to have a cell phone. And it was a, the very nicest cell phone that they sold in the world at the time. It was Number one, man, they've had really great equipment. And when they closed, because the county was taking it over, they said, every person here is allowed to keep their cell phone. And I walked over and I handed it to Jim Blanchard and I said, no, you can keep my cell phone. I don't want that thing. So there you go. 
We should petition him rather than the government for assistance. We should pray for the needs of ourselves and of others, asking that they be met in accordance with his plans and purposes, not claiming stuff as if he were a cosmic ATM machine. Prayer is to be a continuous stream of communication to God, submitted in humility and yet with confidence that he is listening and handling the requests. Life application, we're going to do one more and then I'm going home. I don't care if it's early. Um, life application, living out the many admonitions given by Paul is far more difficult than simply reading them. But by thinking on them and asking for the Lord's help in conforming to these instructions, it is possible to be molded into such a life. Take the time in your prayers today to ask the Lord to change you to be conformed to the person he would truly wish you to be. Oh, you got to go? Oh, okay. All right. Um, 12, 13 for you. Share with God's people who are in need to practice hospitality. Okay. This one is a little different. Read yours again. Share with God's people who are in need Okay. practice eh. Hospitality. Yeah, it's close. Distributing to the needs of the saints. It's a little more active in this one, but that's all right. And then the same, given to hospitality. So it's basically the same. Okay, continuing on with his stream of counsel, Paul now mentions distributing to the needs of the saints. The word for distributing implies sharing. There you go. Okay, or contributing. The early church, as recorded in Acts, had all things in common. That's back in Acts 4.32, if you remember that. In other words, it was what we could ostensibly term, begins with the C, ends with communism. Okay, there you go, communism. That's right. Yeah. However, this isn't thought to be, uh, uh, this isn't to be thought of in the sense used by communists today, where people are forced into wealth distribution. Rather, it was voluntary. Nobody was compelled to resign their property or income. This is very clearly noted in Acts 5, verse 4. Now, our previous president had counselors that would talk about exactly that. They, he had one guy that claimed to be a Christian. I don't remember his name right offhand, but he, I, Tony something. Anyway, he, uh, he was the, Christian, the president's Christian counselor, and he would bring up verses like that and say, see, you are doing the right thing. This is the appropriate way to do it. And he didn't just go a couple more uh, verses later, back down Acts 5, verse 4, which says that they could retain anything they wanted. There was no such thing as taking away from people and giving it to other people. It was a voluntary system. It was still a communist type of system. But anyway, um, that guy, Tony... Campolo. Campolo. I was thinking Tony Baloney, but anyway, you were, you were right. Okay, Thanks, so... Uh, <laughs> all right, um, so as evidenced in Acts, this type of life didn't work out, and a new structure developed in the church as Gentiles moved in. However, the concept of giving has continued to be a mark of Christianity, which goes beyond anything else seen, anything seen elsewhere. Societies which distribute under the guise of fairness are actually the most crooked of all. What is rightfully earned is stolen away to give to those who don't work. Christian giving is one of sacrificial love. It is not giving, or it is giving, not to encourage indolence, but to assist the truly needy. Hence our point about going to the projects this week. We didn't give to them so that they could stay in the position they were in. We gave to them in order to get them out of the position they were in. The government is exactly the opposite. They take somebody's money and they take it away from you and they give it to somebody else so that they will stay dependent on the government. Exactly the opposite precept between the government and Christianity. 
Okay. <clears throat> hand up. Hand out. Yeah, hand up versus hand out. Thank you. Um, what is, uh, I said that is not giving to encourage indolence, but to assist the truly needy. Further, this admonition of Paul speaks of taking care of the needs of the saints. Yes, Christians give outside of the faith, but this verse is speaking of tending to the needs within the faith. <clears throat> Paul then finishes his thought today with the idea that what we are to be given I'm sorry, <clears throat> let me read that again. Paul then finishes his thought today with the idea that we are to be given to hospitality. Hospitality here is different than the distribution just mentioned. It carries the concept of having an open door, a welcome mat in front of the door, and an offering in your hand for the one coming to the door. Hospitality is a personal sharing of one's life and possessions rather than just putting money into a box to be later distributed. Showing hospitality communicates true love and respect for others who are entering into one's presence. In his third epistle, John speaks of this. I'm going to take you to a very small little book, probably the smallest book in the Bible. I talked to somebody about which is the smallest book in the Bible this week, and I think it's three, John. It might be you got Obadiah. 2 and 3 John, they're really small, but 3 John says, um, yeah, 3 John verses 1, uh, chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Sure Beloved, what's that? You sure not chapter 2? Chapter <laughs> oh, I, I, yeah, I see what you're saying. Anyway, um, let's see here. Chapter uh, 2 John has 13 verses. Oh, okay, so 2 John is shorter than 3 John. Anyway, um, <clears throat> let's see here. Uh, where was I? Now you got me thrown no, off. Five through, that's all right. <laughs> Beloved, you do faithfully whatever you do for the brethren and for strangers who have borne witness of your love before the church if you send them forward on their journey in a manner worthy of God, you do well. Because they went forth for his name's sake, taking nothing from the Gentiles. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. So there you go. That's uh, giving in a Christian way and tending to the needs of Christians that have needs. Life application. And mom left, so we've got to stay. we got to do another verse. I, I don't know where. She no. said I'll be. No, she said she'll be right back. She'll be right back. Oh, okay. Anyway, life application. Have you been abundantly blessed by the Lord? <clears throat> if so, when you're at church this weekend, note someone who has been less fortunate and invite them to your house as a gesture of hospitality. Such kindness will reap great rewards for all concerned. Hebrew yes. says, hospitality, you entertain strangers yes. unaware when you have that. Y yes, yeah. absolutely. That, that was a different time. You didn't have to first come down to see you're not have a knife or a gun or whatever. A what? First come down looking for a gun. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, anyway, um, uh, and then there's another thing that says in... Uh, uh, Hebrews about unawares entertaining uh, being good to strangers because uh, you may be entertaining angels unawares yeah. well you can also entertain angels unawares by having you know throwing uh, uh, what do you call it um, when you juggling or you know you can do all kinds of things to entertain angels right That's whatever okay uh, the reason why I said that is because if you remember Reverend Fun it was a cartoon that came out every day on the internet for years and the guy finally stopped but you could make submissions to him of things that were funny then I gave like eight or ten submissions to Reverend Fun, which he made into daily cartoons. And so one of them was um, a picture of a guy at the water cooler in the church. I, I'm sorry, in the office on Monday morning, and he's holding these clothes. And he says, guess what? 
the boss got raptured. Everything's going to be great now. Okay, obviously it's not going to be great. So, um, and then one of them was on that Harold. Harold is walking along and he trips and he's a, he's always falling down and he's entertaining angels unawares. So the angels would laugh at him. Anyway, that made the cartoon. So mom is not here. We're going to close anyway. I know it's early, but um, oh, you've got a key. All right. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for the chance to meet here. We thank you for your word. I know it's been a little bit off today, or at least I feel it is. And uh, I pray that uh, everything is in accord with your word and that you are pleased with the study. And Lord, we thank you for just your hand of kindness upon us, your hand of healing, your hand of grace and mercy in all ways. You are so good to us, Lord. We love you, we praise you, and we exalt you. And we do it in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. Amen. All right, well, let me back this thing up and say goodbye to everybody. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. All right, we've got uh, that's going, and we're going to break.